Let's pray as we turn to God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you that you are a wonderful God, a great big God, the creator of everyone and everything. You are good. And we thank you that you are a speaking God, that you choose to reveal yourself to us. And we pray, please, that as we hear your voice this morning from your word, the Bible, you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are willing to accept what you say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in September when the Queen died and King Charles uh, became king, one of the questions that the papers uh, were asking was, what kind of king is Charles going to be? What's he going to be like as a king? And different people had different answers to that. Some said he's going to be very, very different to his mother. Uh, one person said he's going, to be, he's going to be more discreet and reserved than he was as prince, but not as discreet and reserved as the late queen. Someone else says he's more likely to push for change. Someone else says he's more likely to voice his opinion. But that was the question, what kind of king is he going to be? And of course, only time will tell. But it's a good question to ask, isn't it, at the beginning of someone's reign, what kind of king, what kind of monarch um, is this person going to be? And in our studies in, in John's gospel, that is the question that we've been thinking about. What kind of king is Jesus? Uh, what kind of Messiah is he? Um, how will he rule? What's life going to be like in his kingdom? What kind of king is Jesus? And last time we were in John's gospel, we saw that he, he's a Messiah, he's a king who's come to bring blessing and abundance and joy and gladness as he turned water into wine. An extraordinary insight into King Jesus' generosity. He's a, he's a, a generous king. Well, this week in the second half of John 2, we're shown another side of King Jesus' character, another answer to that question, what kind of king is he? And this time, we're going to see Jesus in an unfamiliar light. Uh, we're going to be presented with a characteristic which might, in fact, make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, uh, a characteristic which is unfamiliar but is just as important as his generosity and which we mustn't airbrush out. That is, this morning, we're going to see King Jesus' burning zeal for God. We're going to see his fiery devotion to his Father's honor and glory. Uh, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem and visits the temple. Now, if you're familiar with some of the other gospel accounts, um, you'll know that they record Jesus cleansing the temple right at the end of Jesus' ministry in the, in the week leading up to his crucifixion. So this visit in John 2, it's either describing an earlier occasion when Jesus did something similar, um, or uh, John has brought that event forward in his gospel, a kind of flash forward, uh, so that chapter 2 for John serves as an introduction to the kind of king that Jesus is. Either options are possible. In any case, it shouldn't make us worry 
Um, but this is what is going on. This is how John is arranging his material. But in any case, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem and he visits the temple. Now, the temple was a hugely significant place. Uh, the temple was meant to be a place of prayer, a place of worship, a place of sacrifice. In Psalm 84, the sons of Tor, they sing of the temple. You'll be familiar with, with this psalm, many of you. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. The temple, that was God's house. It was where God symbolically dwelt. It was where worshippers praised him and met with him. It was sacred. It was holy. It was extraordinarily special. So when Jesus visited the temple, he should have heard the sound of singing and the murmur of prayer. He should have come across a spirit of reverence as people met with and worshipped God in God's house. But what did he find when he visited the temple? Well, let me just read verse 14, uh, chapter 2, verse 14 again for us. In the temple courts, Jesus found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. He ought to find a spirit of reverence, the murmur of prayer, the sound of singing. Instead, he finds a farmer's market. And it must have been chaos. You can imagine the scene, uh, sheep pens over here, cattle over there, uh, doves just everywhere wandering around flapping, a salesman over here bellowing out the price of sheep, a pilgrim over here asking about the price of a bull, and long queues over there for the, the currency exchange. Uh, this, is, this is Belfast City Centre on Christmas Eve. This is Oxford Street on Black Friday. It's, it's chaos. So what does Jesus do? Well, in verses 15 and 16, John records four things that Jesus does in response. Firstly, he makes a whip of cords he makes a whip of cords. Um, it's interesting, Jesus doesn't just fly in with fists flying. Now, he takes his time. Now, presumably, he finds a corner. He gets the cords. He weaves them together. He makes a whip. That would have taken time. So this isn't Jesus overreacting in the heat of the moment, the way maybe we are prone to. Clearly, he's furious with what's going on here. But he's also very much in control of himself so that he would take time to make a whip. Nevertheless, he makes a whip. And secondly, we see he drives out all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. That's what John tells us. In other words, he uses his whip not to hit the salesman, but to drive out the sheep and the cattle. And you can just imagine the chaos as these animals bolt from the temple courts and run into the surrounding streets. Thirdly, we're told he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. 
which is just an extraordinary thought, isn't it? To think of Jesus just, just clearing a table and his coins go flying and then flipping those tables upside down. And then fourthly, we're told, he speaks to those who sold doves. He said, get these out of here. So this is not a strongly worded letter to the temple authorities. Dear sir, madam, it's come to my attention that in previous weeks at market has been set up in the temple courts. This is not acceptable. Something needs to be done about it. No. This is Jesus coming in and trashing this farmer's market and saying in no uncertain terms, you are out, kicking them out. I suppose we've got to ask the question then, well, what was it that made Jesus so incredibly furious? Yes, he was in control, but he was furious. What made him furious? Well, I don't think Jesus was angry that the temple had its own currency. In Matthew 17, Jesus himself pays the temple tax um, in the right currency for him and for Peter. So it wasn't that. I don't think Jesus was angry that, that animals were being sold for sacrifice. In Luke 1, Jesus' own parents um, brought uh, two doves as a sacrifice. Presumably, they bought them in Jerusalem beforehand. And Jesus isn't um, angry with buying and selling and markets generally. Yes, Jesus, time and time again, speaks about the danger of the love of money, but he's not against the use of money, buying and selling and markets, no. Now, Jesus is furious because this cattle market and this currency exchange was set up in the temple courts, in his father's house, so what does he say, verse 16? Stop turning my father's house into a market. In other words, it's the location of all of this in his father's house that infuriates him. Why so? Because in setting up this market in the temple courts, these people were effectively sidelining God, pushing him out, uh, preventing people from worshiping him, distracting people from prayer and from praise, and ultimately treating God with contempt. And so Jesus burns with righteous anger and kicks them out. What does this tell us about the kind of king that Jesus is? Well, two things, and we'll apply these uh, to us as we go. Firstly, it shows us that he is zealous for God's honor. He is zealous for his Father's glory. In verse 17, John spells out the significance of what Jesus does here. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. In other words, Jesus is driven by a deep, burning, hot fervor and passion to see God glorified and honored and loved and obeyed and worshiped, consumed by zeal for God's house. Why? Because he is consumed, uh, consumed with zeal for God. 
zealous for God's honor, driven by God's glory. And so for us, one of the questions is, well, do we see Jesus rightly? We've got to make sure that we don't ignore this side of his character. Um, absolutely, yes, 100%, Jesus is kind, compassionate, gracious, merciful, generous, completely. But we mustn't think for a moment that he's somehow easygoing or indifferent when his father is dishonored. That we always see is that he burns with righteous zeal for God and his honor. Last week, if you were with us, Richard very helpfully spoke about the danger of having a distorted view of ourselves. Well, I think here in John 2, John is warning us of having a distorted view of Jesus, believing in a caricature. Now, do we see King Jesus both as incredibly generous, merciful, gracious, kind, and loving, and also as deeply passionate and zealous for God and his glory. Do we see Jesus rightly? I guess another question for us linked to that is, do we have an appropriate fear of King Jesus? An appropriate fear of King Jesus. Not a fear that would stop us from asking him for help or for forgiveness, no. Not a fear of being condemned, because if we're in Jesus, that we will not be condemned, we've been forgiven. Not a fear that would drive us away from Jesus, but an appropriate fear, a fear of dishonoring God and so provoking King Jesus' anger. I guess it's been quoted a million times in sermons, but I find it really, really helpful. Uh, C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, with the lion there, Aslan, being the Christ figure. And speaking about Aslan, the Christ figure, one of the children ask, is he, is, he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And the beaver in the story replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he is good. He's the king. We ought to, I think, feel a nervousness about defying a temple-cleansing king like Jesus. We ought to stop in our tracks and think twice before, before provoking him by sinning. There is always forgiveness available when we turn back to God. But in the moment, this should encourage us to have, a, have an, an appropriate fear and respect a loving fear of this temple-cleansing king of provoking his anger? Do we have an appropriate fear of King Jesus? I suppose this also uh, provokes the question, will we share our king's uh, zeal for God's honor? You know, it's interesting going forward in the New Testament, um, seeing the apostle Paul when he visits Athens and he sees all of uh, the idolatry going on there, and he's distressed because God isn't being honored. And the question for us is, well, are we zealous for God's honor like that? Do we feel righteous anger when God isn't honored? 
And are we grieved by our own sin? Or when we hear of others blank God or walk over him, do we feel not just compassion for them, but also zeal for God's honor? We ought to feel both of those things. Do we, like Jesus, feel a burning surge of energy to do whatever we can to restore God's honor? Because like Jesus, we value the Father. Uh, not by making whips, not by flipping tables, that's for him. We're not the Messiah, but by living for him and by speaking of him. Will we share King Jesus' zeal for God? So that's the first thing we're really seeing here about King Jesus, that he is zealous for God's honor. But then secondly, and just finally, we also see here that he's the boss, that he's the boss. Uh, King David was consumed by zeal for God's house. We see that in Psalm 69. And here, in acting the way that he did, Jesus shows himself to be King David 2.0, to be the king that David pointed forward to, to be the long-promised Messiah, to be the boss. And again, in the second half of our passage, which we won't really focus too much on now, but in the second half of our passage, the Jewish leaders quiz him, what authority do you have to do this? And in, in, in essence, his answer is that he will die and rise again, showing himself that he's the king who will rule forever, the long-promised Messiah. He's the boss. He's the king. He's the, in charge, zealous for God's glory and the boss. And so for us, as we think about the Lord Jesus, that, the question comes to us is, will we, will we treat him as the boss? Will we treat King Jesus as king? Not just accepting him as savior, uh, trusting in him as rescuer, but also recognizing his authority, his right to rule over our lives, that we might submit to him and conform to him and defer to him and bow down to him. Will we treat him as boss? Or will we be more like those first century Jews who treated him with contempt? They confronted him and challenged him, defied him. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? N not saying, look, we don't quite understand what's, what you mean by this. Can you explain some more? But by saying, you're talking nonsense. Get out of here treating him with contempt. Will we treat him not with contempt, but as the boss? What might that look like? Well, I guess that would mean that when there's a difference of opinion between us and Jesus, we're the ones who change, not him. He's the boss. We've got to be the ones who adapt and conform to him rather than expecting him to adapt and conform to us and to our views. He's the boss, not us. It'll mean letting Jesus disagree with us, willing to let Jesus change our minds because he's the boss. Will we treat him as such? Let's pray.